1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America N.A. member FDIC. It's the imbalance history of rock and roll. I'm Ray Cobb.
0: I'm Marcus Goldman.
1: And this week, buddy, we've got an amazing guest. First off, he's an incredible writer. He's written books about all kinds of rock and rock and roll through the years and really always thought it'd be great to talk to him and pick his brain about all those books. But Mick Wall has a new book, Life in the Fast Lane, The Eagle's Reckless Ride Down the Rock and Roll Highway.
0: And this book is fantastic. A great read. The stories that he manages to tell throughout the entire book are mind-blowing. And I found myself a lot of times just going, wow, what the hell? Wow, what the fuck? And the peripheral stories that help make the Eagles what they are are just as good and just as crazy as the story of the Eagles itself.
1: I'm going to put the Camaro in the fourth gear, and we're going to fly down that rock and roll highway with Mick Wall first question i had really was you've written all these great hard rock and metal based books you're considered an icon amongst authors in the genre how do you come around to writing about the eagles and their sordid path of debauchery
2: well the last two words of your sentence there kind of answer that question no what it is is i mean i've also written books about the doors lou reed elton john so of course i'm mainly known for the led zeppelins and the Guns and Roses and stuff like that. Um, I'm a storyteller, okay? None of my books, apart from in my very earliest career, 30-odd years ago, fan books and lots of pictures. Not those, but the stuff I've been doing for the last sort of 15 years. I'm not concerned with the music. I mean, obviously, the music is a huge part of the story, but I'm interested in the story. And... You know, these days especially, you can pull up someone's music in two seconds on your phone. You can Wikipedia and Google all the information you need about the music. So, yes, it's important to cover that side of things and and put it into perspective. But that's not where I'm coming from. I don't come as a music fan. I come as a storyteller, a guy who is addicted to stories. And the Eagles story is extraordinary and a bit like Led Zeppelin, less so, because there's been loads of books about the Eagles. But I don't feel their story has ever been told with any sort of degree of empathy or understanding. It's always a kind of a judgmental, told from a very kind of contemporary perspective. Whereas I wanted to go in there and tell it like it was in the 70s, in LA, baby. And uh, a town that I love and I lived in for years, and I still every chance I get go back to So it's the story. It's the story. And I felt I could really sink my teeth into it and and, and do something with it that hasn't been done before.
0: Even though you in the beginning of the book talk about how much Don Hanley and Irving Azoff hate storytellers like yourself and book writers like yourself, you felt that you were able to get this story told with that type of a hurdle?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't write any of my books to please the artist or the managers. I don't write them to please the fans. I write them to please a reader who loves books, with amazing stories. So, for instance, you know, the Motley Crue book, The Dirt, at least half the people that bought that never owned a Motley Crue record in their entire life. They didn't give a shit about that. True. But the book, the stories, (laughs) that's an extreme example. The Eagles are the full package. You know, they've got the songs, they've got the story. And that era, the 70s, always, I find, that's my era, really, because... It isn't the idealistic 60s. It isn't the kind of postmodern 80s. It's that period in history when more than movies, you know, people talk about the golden age of new Hollywood, you know, Coppola, Scorsese, to me the music of the rock music of the 70s, it was like the information highway of its time. It was the most vital form of media, truth to power. We invested these people with enormous respect and looked to them for almost like a kind of a guidance, a kind of a what's the word, you know, because no one had a mobile phone. There was no Internet. The network was going to those shows or buying those records and feeling part of that experience. And because the 70s was also, you know, uh, drugs are not a new thing. Sex is not a new thing. Albums. This is now a new thing. I mean, you know, album sales overtook the sales of singles in America by about 1969. And so suddenly here comes the 70s and there's a whole new focus involved and a whole new artistry involved. And also in the case of, say, the Eagles and Led Zeppelin, for instance, because they're like second generation, they are the sons of the 60s. They are kind of like what punk was later in that decade, they don't really give a shit about what came before. They're playing by their own rules. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons people like David Crosby always hated them or, you know, they're not regarded in the same area as Neil Young or someone like that. Someone serious, you know. And I'm like, bullshit. Um, These guys wrote immortal songs and they did it their way. I mean, no one was in their corner. They went out and just did it badass on their own. And the people that did take care of them, like Irving, were also badass, also not interested in the rules, also no interest in in spreading peace and love, but uh, spreading rock and roll and kick some ass, take some names. Uh, Let's have a mountain of that Peruvian flake. Holy
1: cow, right? That is explained in vivid detail in the book. And you tell the story really well in as much as this is how the guys and how they met you painted on a canvas to try to set that stage of what was going on the troubadour and everything that was going on around it and all the different pieces and where they came from as it all converged two things first you, you just pumped up my appreciation for Graham Parsons all over again it's been a while since I felt this oh yeah yeah and the other thing and it's not something I was expecting to find in the book. You explained the impact of Christine Hinton's death on David Crosby and how it changed him forever, apparently. And I never realized the depth to which her death, sure, we read about it in the paper, like you said. We're about the same age. So we saw stuff in the paper, we saw it in the in the magazines, the rock magazines, or we heard about it on the radio, pretty much. They're the ways we found out about stuff. Even all the books that we read today weren't being written yet. But I never realized what a devastation to him That was, and it explains a lot of what happened down the road with Kroz as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the idea is to try and provide context, but not that orthodox rock journalism context of the 60s were peace and love mm-hmm. and 70s were decadence and it's just not as simple as that you know crosby and that generation were pioneers you know they they were like the first men in space you know they they were literally inhabiting an area no artist had inhabited before not even the beatles because although they were obviously a complete one off in history they didn't play live in, anymore after what 65 66 they did not know the world that post-Woodstock generation inhabited. And so in order to try and understand where the eagles were coming from, you have to explain where they landed. Those guys were pioneers. The eagles were settlers. You know, they were the children born on the new world. Right. You know, it was like the first people that came to America. The first people that came to Rockland were the Crosbys and the Jonies and Uh, birds and all those people the eagles were born there you know that's their world they don't know any different right they joined it all in progress and then said okay
1: how do we fit in and then went for their spot they really did they kind of tried to find it and then went for that with all the help of jackson and jd and everybody else who was involved in songwriting too it was like a free-for-all but they knew it was all heading somewhere i think they did at least that's what i got from your story
2: Well. I think they understood that they were in the right place at the right time. And it was a case of kind of assimilating as much of that as was necessary mm-hmm. and useful. But for, you know, Glenn in particular, but Glenn and Don, it wasn't about bringing new country to the world or bringing attention and focus to the world that even Grand Parsons inhabited or, or the late period birds. It wasn't about that. It was about being a rock and roll band, being rock and roll stars, you know, being the... I, when I lived in LA, everybody seemed to come from somewhere else. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, at a certain point, people came there either for the movie business or the uh, music business. Mm-hmm. It's that old cliche of every waiter is better looking than Brad Pitt. You know, they, they, <laughs> they just didn't make it. You know, every woman is the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And she's uh, doing a regular job. So I think the Eagles you know, they felt it was an opportunity. And I think, and this is a weird thing to say, but if if that had been, they'd been in London in 1972, I have no doubt that they'd have been part of the glam rock thing, because that was the way to get a foothold in the business. Elder John, Rod Stewart, David Bowie, all these people put on the makeup and the shiny clothes and did that whole theatrical thing. So I get what I'm saying is, is that I don't think the, apart from Bernie Ledden, who really was a country rock through and through, the other guys wanted rock and roll stardom. They wanted to fly on a private plane, travel in limousines, have the coolest dealer bring the purest shit straight right. to their million dollar view mansion. And they
1: weren't even coy about it. You know, they were right up front. This is where we're here for, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Total success on every level
2: and then some. Absolutely. They completely owned it. I mean, they owned it. And I think also because so many of those people on that scene kind of took against them. You know, Jackson Brown, he's cool because you can see direct links between him and even Dylan or Mm -hmm. or that whole singer-songwriter era. But the Eagles i mean david crosby hated them he was like he felt like they'd done to country or folk or country or americana what the stones had done to chuck berry or or the blues Mm. you know he fake man it's just they're just taking it and commercializing it yeah that's
0: exactly what they're they're doing
1: they were pretty good at it too and that comes through in a lot of different ways
0: At the beginning of the book, you did a great job telling the entire backstory of how we got to the Eagles. You went through all of the peripheral moments in time that made the Eagles happen, including talking about the Troubadour and how there were so many wannabes or artists that were really good but couldn't get past the Troubadour Was it easy digging up the history of the Troubadour or was that a challenge? Because you went into some pretty obscure like moments, I guess not obscure, but people who weren't connected to the scene wouldn't know. So was it a challenge getting that backstory ready with the Eagles coming together?
2: It didn't feel like a challenge because one of the most enjoyable parts of putting a book together for me is the research and following threads because people feel they know these stories already a lot of music writers want to write about groups or artists that they love that they are actual fans of and so they have this narrative in their head already and they just kind of want to just lay it out um in my case for about 15 years now with all my books i've worked with a lot of people i've known for decades and interviewed a billion times but it's only when i've done a book about them that i find out stuff i never ever knew So I enjoy that part of it. In terms of LA and the Troubadour, I did a book on The Doors, a book on Hendrix, a book on Led Zeppelin. I already know that territory pretty darn well. I mean, apart from my books, you know, I've also written a billion articles on people like Frank Zappa and Love and Crosby Stills and Nashville, that whole area. So I felt that I was in familiar territory, but... So much stuff I didn't know. I can't remember his name now, but in the book, there's this actor that was in the high chaparral, and he refers to Doug Weston, the owner of the troubadour, as the tallest queer I ever knew. Mm -hmm. You know, this stuff is out there if you go digging. But also, I mean, I I interviewed Eve Babbitts for my Doors book, and she was telling me all about the troubadour back then as well, you know, because Morrison was a visitor there. And you get a sense of a time and a place. But what I don't want to do is feel like I actually know this so well, I can just kind of do you a nice job. So every thread, every tangent, I followed it. I mean, that chapter on the true took the longest time to write that simply because every single person I mention, I end up going down that rabbit hole. To find out more and more and more. I mean, the Troubadour, I now know way more about the Troubadour than I knew before. <laughs> uh, you know, big Titsu and bigger titsu And, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and Linda Ronstadt talking about you could smell the semen. In yeah. The- yeah, that was wild.
1: You know, something I got from reading the book, and it's a thought I had, and you tell me how you guys feel about it that that self-titled Linda Ronsat album with the guys on it in a lot of ways is kind of like the, really the first Eagles album. I mean, they, yeah, yeah, they're all there, but the songwriting circle and all of it. And it's one of those things I'm listening to it, getting ready to talk to you. And I'm like, wow, that's really like the Eagles predecessor, if you will.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I listen, I completely agree. And it absolutely was. I mean, it was while they were being her band that uh, Glenn and Don decided they would make their own band.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I guess this is what I mean is if the Eagles, if Don and Glenn had ended up in New York, I think they still would have been amazing songwriters, but it would have been a different musical perspective. But they ended up in California at that moment when Geffen signs them, Azoff manages them. To be in that position, you've got to be kind of of that scene. You can't just stick out like a sore thumb and go, we are different to the rest. And they go, "Okay, well, we're going to sign the rest because that's where it's at right now. Um, They kind of wore that cloak, you know, they wore those clothes and they ran with it. They ran with it and, and they were able to do something that none of the others were able to do. Not consistently. They might have one big hit or two big albums, but the Eagles got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. At a time when, if your record went gold and you could play at the Hollywood Bowl, I mean, man, you've made it. That, that's yeah. the ceiling right there. They went, no, 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 five million, 500 million. You yeah. want to do 10 nights at the bowl? In mm-hmm. fact, fuck that. Let's do Dodgers Stadium. You know, I love that thing as well because there was that kind of circle the wagons thing where. Because Rolling Stone objected to them and, you know, all the, the, the that's my dog. So big guys. Oh, no, they're upstarts. You know, I think they really, rather than succumb to that, they kind of circled the wagon and went a big fuck you to all that shit. Mm-hmm. And there's a saying in the music business, which is in the book, you know, which goes back to the 70s when I got involved in the business, which is art for art's sake, hit singles for fuck's sake. For sick, yeah. yeah, I love that. But, but you got to have it. a hit.
0: Absolutely. But you also said something or quoted Lester Bangs, who said something very important. And maybe this is part of David Crosby's hatred for the Eagles. If you want to conquer American hearts, feed them their own poison dipped in candy canes as the (laughs) wicked wind whispers and moans. And that is American society to a T, without a doubt. Lester nailed it.
2: Yeah, I mean, Lester nailed so many artists and their music he was definitely a visionary in that regard he was able to kind of look at it almost from a modern I mean man died in the early 80s but what he says still resonates now he, he wasn't really talking about particularly at that moment he was extrapolating going hey look this is what's really going on. Not whether you are an authentic bluegrass guy mm-hmm. or, you know, you came from uh, the burrito brothers or whatever, you know, it was dude, this is, we're talking something else. It's never mind country rock and all that shit. What we're talking about here is more extraordinary than that. And that was very revealing. I mean, to me, the Eagles are kind of the ultimate American band. I mean, there are many groups you can make that claim for, mm-hmm. um, but I think, in the 70s, at that moment when music was the most important medium, yeah, that reached the freest minds, the most open hearts. Yeah. When it wasn't drugs, it was expanding your consciousness. It was trying to connect to some kind of energy that would make you more creative and make you see more of real life than ordinary people do. That was the thinking. That was the belief. And I think the fact that they were able to Have that sweet, sweet sound. But at the same time, the message in those words goes deep, goes deep and dark. Holy cow. Really dark, really dark. But people didn't, you know, I think apart from Leicester, most critics, I don't think, really got it. You know, I think there was a lot of envy over their success that always puts critics off because. Mm They have nothing to do with that success. They weren't critics darlings that suddenly made it one day. They just made it with or without the critics. And particularly in those days, that was the heyday of music journalism. You know, yeah. that just didn't sit. Well, same with Led Zeppelin. You know, they were hated by the oh, critics. Yeah. Because they hadn't been created by the critics. They hadn't sought approval. They didn't tick all those boxes. They just went out and just
0: And this is a perfect place to break and grab a pint from Crooked Eye Brewery right in the heart of Hatboro. And we'll be back with more from Mick Wall talking about his outstanding new book, Life in the Fast Lane. It is a fantastic story about the Eagles. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll.
1: Summertime is here and it's time to get in and spend some time with your friends at Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hatboro. They're right there, just off York Road on Montgomery Avenue. And what goes on in the summertime, Marcus, you know you've been there when the doors are up and uh, the windows are open.
0: Yeah, you get a nice little breeze running through the bar, and you get all these tasty beers to try. And being that it's summertime, the summer
1: beers are out. And don't forget the Salty Vets Barbecue. They've got cocktails. That's right. Craft cocktails from Pennsylvania distillers. Wine, you need it. You want some cider? They got that. Take a growler home or a gift certificate for a friend who loves Crooked Eye. But stop by any You can find their calendar on their Facebook page. There's always something going on. Of course, the Crooked Eye Band's there the second Saturday of every month. Come out and have a brew and make a new friend because that's part of what goes on when you visit Crooked Eye Brewery.
0: Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014.
1: You're on the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll podcast. Ray and Marcus talking with Mick Wall about his new book, Life in the Fast Lane: The Eagles' Reckless Ride Down the Rock and Roll Highway, and what an all-star cast of characters we meet along the way. The early days when Glenn Johns takes them to different locations in England. Out of their element, the no drug rules and all that stuff. And somehow those first two albums come out with some really great production and some sweet stuff on them. But it's what starts to happen out of the hits from those first two into on the border and beyond when it really starts to get crazy. And life is crazy outside of the studio touring thing, although the touring thing in the 70s doesn't really resemble to a full degree what goes on today. It was so much different, I'd say, in the... Uh, craziness department back then it was more a part of the natural scene of things
2: absolutely It, it was incumbent upon you as a musician if you needed to be taken seriously that you had no limits that there were no boundaries you were the man that led us across the boundary you were the guy that took us to the forbidden palace of wisdom and if you didn't like the sex and the drugs, well, you got a problem. That's a you problem. We're having a party, okay? The Eagles, of course, took it to another level. You know, that whole thing of they'd be touring and they'd be in some place in America where they didn't consider the chicks particularly hot or not hot enough.
0: So they would <laughs> a
2: Learjet into L.A., to go down the strip and pick up all the groupies from, you know, the rainbow or places like that and fly them out to wherever they were. And the next day, put them on the jet and fly them home again. And they used to call it love them and leer em, you know?
1: Another That's saying that up. pops up, you know, throughout the book, that one pops up again mm-hmm. and again.
2: Can you imagine now going, ha ha, ha we love them and leer them. I mean, that ah, yeah. Can you imagine that? cancelled oh my god all kinds of shit Mm -hmm. comes down on your head it did back then not for the same reasons but through sort of a hatred because they didn't care you know they're doing their Mm. thing and guess what it really is working for them it's working for them baby I mean Fleetwood Mac Stevie Nicks would have to have a white grand piano in her hotel suite at every show and of course how many hotels in America, even the best ones, have suites with a white grand piano? Probably some. Mm-hmm. But mainly, they would take out a wall and airlift it in. And she'd only be in there for two nights, you know. Um, Crazy. Because that was the amount of money these guys were making for... And don't forget, the label made way more money than the Eagles ever did. Yep. All the people that were working for them, the managers... All those people, that's where the serious, dough went, the promoters. So I think they felt they were owed. Yeah, we want a, a Learjet or a white grand piano. Goddamn, going to have one, you know, because yeah. we know you fuckers are all ripping us off. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God.
0: And that and even that, comes you know, up in the book. One
2: well. flop record away from it all going away, you know right
0: that's true and you also went into a lot of detail about the second to third record which back then in the music industry especially when labels were actually working with bands and teaching them how to get better and working with them to improve if the first two albums were only okay and didn't do so well that third album was always a make them or break them record and it was really fun how you went into detail about that aspect and you also captured the stress level, I think, that the Eagles were feeling in getting that third record done to their satisfaction and to making it work so that they don't end up like most other bands in so many cases.
2: Absolutely. And we're talking about an era in music when it was unimaginable that a a group would have a a 40 year career or 50 year career from the third album on the border, what, in 75, 75? four so before, yeah oh yeah 30 years before that you know it's world war ii you know 30 years yeah, sure. so it's just unimaginable five years you've done really really well i mean the beatles are only around for eight years you know right um so it was a very very short career for 99 of artists and with the third album I think now when people think of the story, they go, oh, it's the first album, take it easy. And then that second album didn't go so well, but there was Desperado, Tequila. It all kind of makes sense to them. But in that moment, they'd had success with that first album, big flopperoony with the second album. It is make or break, buddy. It is now or never. And never is right here, you know? And. And I think that's very important to bring to people's attention. I'll tell you what, that album, for instance, on the border, you got Best of My Love, which was pretty much the last song they did for that. They didn't really... Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it's probably... the. They did that with Glyn Johns. But because they'd done it with Glyn Johns, they weren't crazy about including it. But that's their first number one. But there's also, you know, there's a couple of tracks on that that I just think are amazing the bernie leden track my man Mm -hmm. yeah which is about graham parsons who of course he you know been in the same band with at different Mm -hmm. points what a great song that is and the title track on the border i mean this is funky rock it's not country rock and it's about paranoia and spying and
1: (laughs) california music isn't that what they kept saying (laughs) yes let me ask you something you know, Geffen sells Asylum at this key point, right about where we're talking about, right? Don't you think that he might have, if he were a gambler, might have held on for a little while longer? Because the things that happened next on the border for them, the next record for Linda and for Jackson and all the other artists do, they were on the verge of some serious next level shit. And would his payoff, do you think, have been even greater if he hadn't moved on to work with Wee at that point?
2: arguably yes and of course he was deeply unhappy after he'd left and began that new job i mean i think he probably realized you know what i made a wrong turn in the road here somewhere but again you have to remember that we're talking about a short-term business the acts he's got the eagles are the Mm -hmm. most successful he manages to snag dylan but only for one studio album and a live album you know, he's put a lot of chips on the table and only really the Eagles have paid off. But then the second album is like in the dumpster. So it's do I stick or twist? Do I roll the dice? And he got offered a big number, big number. And I, and I think, you know, when something like that happens, there's got to be a lot of you in your brain that says this may never come again. You know, Maybe right. this is as good as it gets because the next Eagles album could be a, just a disaster sales wise. Plus, I think he hated having to deal with the day-to-day, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it explains in the book the phone call that Irving took from Glenn screaming about no-one had sent a limo to pick him up at the airport. Meanwhile, America, the other group they manage, they're all in limos and everything's Uh cool because they're amazing. The Eagles are standing there, you know, holding their dicks in their hand, getting a taxi, and no-one will take their call. Geffen's gone, Irving takes the call. Irving takes the call. Mm.
1: Irving gets it all done. He takes the care of things so you guys don't have to be so stressed out all the
2: time. And that's what a rock star wants to hear. That's all they want to hear. Yep. You're great. Leave the rest to me. You,
1: you know? need a hot guitar player to bring into the mix? How about this Joe Walsh guy? You know him. How about yes. Bill Simsick to help in the studio? Look, he did The Thrill Is Gone for B.B. King.
2: Do you know what? That's such a good point. I mean, that is all mm. Irving. Yep. That is all Irving. But how he managed to pull that stuff off, uh, it's is just, you can't take it away from him. That was some amazing moves. That he he just did it
1: again, Mick, with the Joe Cocker estate. Another big move. Watch the Joe Cocker revival start now that he's involved in, in his legacy.
2: He is the great, there's a quote in the book, I think, from maybe from Glenn, or, well, Glenn or Don, And they say, uh, you know, uh, Irvin might be Satan, you know, but he's our Satan. (laughs)
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You kind of go, yeah, yeah. yeah." He's Uh, totally. uh, And you think in those days of the the biggest, most formidable managers in the world, Peter Graham, he may be Satan. But he's our <laughs> right,
1: um, No. You want him on your side yes. of the fence there. Yes. No, definitely. Yes. You,
2: know, you can't fight these guys. No. But if you can get them fighting for you, boy, your ass is covered.
0: You know? Absolutely. One of the parts of the book that hit me the hardest was how in detail you were able to describe Graham Parson's death. Was it hard to get that information And was it difficult emotionally to write about a real person dying a horrific death versus a fictional story of somebody dying?
2: Uh, How hard was it to get? No harder really than the research on the troubadour and, and other parts. The stuff is out there. If you look and you look and you keep looking... And you don't settle for the first couple of things you get. You know, that that chapter could have been easily written with far less information. But for me, the thing that I get off on doing these books, I don't know what the story is. You know, I I still get publishers and they're asking me to pitch something. They're like, so what's the story? I don't know. You know, that's the point is, yeah, I can tell you. I can give you the Wikipedia page, you know, i show you the MTV behind the music or whatever. But the whole point is, is that I don't think anybody knows until you go out and really try and look. With Graham, again, his death was sort of shrouded in a lot of mystery. But as the years have gone by, more and more people, particularly that his name escapes me at the moment, but particularly the tour manager he had, who was involved in getting the body and bringing it back to Joshua tree. Mm-hmm. You know, He's gone on the record and talked about stuff. Other people have the people that ran the Joshua in the woman and her son who were attended to Graham, you know, they've gone on the record in, in subsequent years. It's all away in dusty little corners. Sometimes just local newspapers in America, you know, there isn't a paper called this, but like, you know, the Joshua truck times, <laughs> you know, the tree chronicles, you know, places that went out of business but there's such an enormous archive of material out there that you can access plus your own contacts over the years i've made i mean i've been in the business for over 45 years and a lot of that time in la and you meet people they tell you stuff you follow it up and suddenly, it all starts. The dots connect, and you get it together. And you go, "Okay, oh my god!" I mean, I didn't know, for instance, that a guy had worked with Charlie Manson. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that. They were um, pretty close to that. Yeah. That was scary,
1: almost. When yeah. you know, find
2: out that they're like, you know,
1: rubbing up against them that close. <laughs> I know. Um, you know what also got me was Kenny Rogers' role. That you wrote about that part of the story. I had zero idea that anything like that was in there and things like that. If you're somebody's thinking about the book, get it and read it because it's got all kinds of neat stuff that you didn't know before. I guarantee, unless you're Mick Wall, he's already done all the work for you. It's all in one place. And trust me, he's got a track record you can trust. Absolutely. Oh, thank
2: you. That's very kind of you to say. Ah, it's no. a great
1: book. So yeah. much fun. Your storytelling it- really comes across.
2: Yep. Well, it- thank you. That was the idea. People say, well, there's been lots of other books. Why is your book different? Well, it's by me. Okay, so I'm not just trying to tell you everything you already know, or even everything I already know. I'm just trying to tell you what I found out when I started digging. And this book, I mean, I dug for a long time. I mean, originally it was supposed to come out in the summer of 2020. Because the Eagles were coming over to the UK to part of their Hotel California tour. And of course, that all got cancelled with lockdown. But 2019, I was in America all the time. In LA, Miami, Nashville. And I really spoke to a lot of people about this stuff. And most of them won't go on the record because the Eagles are still a formidable business operation. Mm -hmm. And LA is still a small town in that regard when it comes to people in the music business that know each other and everybody's got to work so i gathered so much stuff in that year but of course it all got put back because of the pandemic the eagles didn't finally get here till last summer so the very last chapter concerns that show they did last summer and my thing is trying not to second guess, not to just repeat what all the others have said, but to really forensically go, are you sure? Are you sure? It's like, you know, Led Zeppelin. I did the Zeppelin book. I did the Zeppelin book. I've known Jimmy Page very well for 20 years. And in that whole 20 years, I was still buying this bullshit about how, well, when Bonham died, we couldn't go on. You know, we just felt we could bullshit are you telling me that after led zeppelin 2 if bonham had died in a car crash or something or or drugs that they wouldn't have carried on of course they would they're not going to throw away their one chance because the drummer died are you kidding me um you know the average white band their drummer died and they they just got another guy in and fucking had a huge career so there's the orthodoxy that all the books reprint. It's like when I did my Hendrix book. My God, man, I became sickened at the enormous mountain of books that just repeated the same old crap. You know, pictures of Hendrix. Oh, in Carnaby Street in the 60s. He was lived in London for about eight months. You know, he had this whole life in America as a black American in the ghetto, all of which informed his personality his choices, his music, and no one seemed to have addressed it. It was all about, is he a great guitar player? Oh, come on, we know that. Yeah. Tell us something we don't know, you know? Yeah. So, for instance, here's another orthodoxy. Hendrix was in the 81st Airborne, but he he got, like, pensioned out because he hurt his leg in a jump. I've read that in so many books. Well, you talk to the people that were there, and they'll tell you, no. He spent a year pretending to be gay in order to get out. He didn't do a jump and hurt his leg. He Mm. spent a year pretending to be gay. They knew he was faking it. He ended up in the stockade and eventually they just got rid of him. Get this asshole out of here. He ain't quitting. Life is really complicated. And to me, that's where the interesting stuff is. I'm not putting Hendrix down. I'm putting the books down that find it easier to just repeat these silly stories mm-hmm. that go round and round and round, you know.
0: Now, that's fascinating. And that's the way it should be. You're telling the stories the right way. Now, you brought in the sociological aspect, the societal aspect, what's happening in the world politically, socially, sexually, however it may be. That's all important in the story. At some point in the book, you said that the scene in L.A. died with the Manson and Zodiac killers as well as the heroine. Do you want to expand a little bit on that? Because you didn't go into too much detail about that. But how did that scene die with all of that?
2: Well, for instance, it, it quotes uh, Michelle Phillips saying before the Manson murders, no one locked their doors. She said it was the best time of my life. We were having hit records, friends over day and night. And then after the Manson killings, not only did everybody lock their doors, everybody carried guns. I mean, she, she carried a gun in her purse. I spoke to people that told me they would have shotguns in the car. I find that interesting because I think the 70s itself was a a kind of a reaction in many ways to the 60s. You know, the 60s, by the time we end the 60s, Beatles, All You Need Is Love, LSD, Summer of Love, Right On, Right On, Woodstock. And then you get Altamont, you get Manson, and then you get the 70s. And, And the 70s was... More, more cynical i don't know if it was entirely cynical but it was more knowing it wasn't innocent and wow i never knew that you mean you can make psychedelic music you know it, it, it was kind of already been done and we were into the last days of rome where we are now feeding people to the lions mm-hmm. and, and and eating so much food we're going to vomit and then eat some more
0: yeah like mr creosote uh, yeah, totally mr creosote now that's interesting and and you talk a little bit more about that in chapter 20 the dark and the light where you kind of talk about the horror of la and some of the gnarliness and the gnarly shit that happens there and i think it's one of the most exciting chapters to read but also one of the kind of darkest chapters to read too
2: yeah Well, I can't pretend that as a writer that that stuff doesn't excite you because obviously it's very interesting Mm -hmm. to read, to write about. And, you know, I'm a child of the 70s. I got my first job in the music business in 77. But, of course, the 70s before that was where I first started buying records and going to gigs and growing my hair and losing my virginity and learning (laughs) how to roll a joint. So I always hated the 80s. You know, the 80s was when my career kind of took off. But I always hated the 80s because I felt I'd missed out on the good stuff. I'm working with Def Leppard and Bon Jovi and David Lee Roth and Ozzy Osbourne and you name it, which was amazing. But man, how amazing can it be compared to working with the Stones or the Eagles? Where's that? The Rolling
1: Circus on the road, man. <laughs>
2: I mean, in a way, it's good because I'm sure that as you see in the book, you know, a lot of it was horrific. A lot of it was the cocaine will do that to you. You know, Mm it will send you to the dark side over a period of time.
0: The heroin, Uh, too.
2: Oh, well, Uh, yeah. yeah. The heroin's like the nuclear option. You know, there's very few survivors. And then there's this horrible nuclear winter of being a junkie where you don't even get high anymore. You just have to keep doing the drug.
0: Another question I have, because there there, there was a lot of inner fighting between the members of the Eagles, a lot of ego and a lot of that. And on page 192 of the copy I read, Glenn was really pissed that Randy's song was the first Eagles song to sell a million copies. Why the fuck would he get pissed about that instead of being excited?
2: Because he's Glenn Fry and this is his band. And... Suddenly Randy has something that Glenn doesn't have and Glenn would really like to have. And also he'd probably just done three grams of coke and it just didn't sit good with him, you know? Bands are funny things, you know? I've worked with so many and they nearly all hate each other or bicker. The longest tour I've done was like two months. As an author, I've done tours as well. And when you're on the same bus, even a luxury bus, which is what I end up on, For seven weeks, you are ready to never see those people again at the end. You know, now imagine seven years (laughs) and shit tons of money. And there's always that thing of, yeah, but I wrote that bit. You know, why why are they Mm. listening to you? I was in the studio, I encouraged you to sing that. I wrote that. Wait a minute. You
1: change three words and you get a third of the royalties. What the fuck Uh. is that? That's in the book.
2: Yeah. Well, that's that's what they say, you know. Uh, change a word, get a third. You know that yeah, that's that's one another one of those catchphrases. <laughs> well, that happened with Aerosmith. You know, when was it Diane Warren? They had a song called Ragtime, and she came in and changed it to Ragdoll, which became a huge hit. Ragdoll. Mm-hmm. Sure. She changed it. It was Ragtime. Hence, all that New Orleans kind of jazz mm-hmm. going on around the horns. She just changed it to Ragdoll, and she got a third. <laughs> <laughs> Changed the word. Tyler was furious. <laughs> Gets a third <laughs> word, you know. But dude, did it work? It sure. made him a
0: ton of money.
2: Yeah. Better two-thirds of a ton of money than three-thirds of fuck all, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> true. No.
1: Oh man. So much fun talking with you. I gotta ask, what's next? You've written a shit ton of books. You've Seen so much, learned so much. Which, by the way, we actually learn stuff doing this podcast, and uh, it's a process. Once you start, I don't think you stop. So, what's the next thing you're learning about that's coming out?
2: Well, there's a. I've got a book coming out over here in September. I don't think there's a US deal for it yet. It's a slightly different thing. It's not as intense as the Eagles. It's called Hercules: The A to Z of elton john and the idea is is that if you are a mega elton john fan you'll still find lots of stuff in this that's gonna really keep you entertained but if you're just a, not particularly a mega fan boy are you in for a treat because you know elton is this kind of zealot figure that, that literally knows everybody mm-hmm. uh, from Billie jean king to britney spears you know he was at the white house he was at buckingham palace he's spoken to putin you know this guy has been everywhere done everything and was completely fucked up for a great amount of time now is over it so it's uh the idea is is that you could just read it as a regular book or just fold open wherever you are and there'll, there'll be something there or if there's something like that, rocket man let me look at that go to r you know these things in publishing There's an expression, I can't remember. It's like gift publishing. The idea is it comes out for Christmas Mm -hmm. or Father's Day. So it's very much meant as, it's not so much a Mick Wall book, it's a gift book. But of course, Elton being such an incredible character, I really enjoyed doing that. But the next serious biography, I'm actually talking to the good folks at Diversion about, so I can't really get into it. What I will say... Because they seem very, very keen, but they haven't come back yet and said, yes, but we were talking about the Eagles book and they were saying they got a really good guy there. And he was saying, like you, what he liked about the Eagles book was how in the 70s, you get all these tangents and figure out stuff about people you didn't know before and maybe find a book that, again, concentrated on a certain period or era. And I think I've come up with a really good idea and it is set bang slap in the middle of the 70s in america it's all in america Ooh. like 74 75 76 so. 74, my 75. high
1: school years years too probably
2: right yes yes yeah. absolutely and like i say for me i loved the 70s because there was no aids mm. but it felt like we'd cured venereal disease you know There was the pill. So you didn't have to get pregnant. You didn't have to pick up a nasty dose of something. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Drugs are good, you know? (laughs) I used to do PR for a lot of bands, okay? And in the late 70s, if you turned up, we did uh, Black Sabbath, Journey, REO Speedwagon, Dire Straits, loads of people. And if you turned up at the show and you did not have cocaine, Oh, fucking hell. Why are you even here? You know, I mean, what?
0: That's crazy.
2: We used to build the bands back okay so, but on the invoice it would say champagne and flowers for the bank right that would be all the money right. we had to spend on cocaine for these oh, bucks.
0: that's you know? hilarious
2: but because in the 70s cocaine was it was like uh you know people discussing antique it was yes. his yeah. filthy drug it was this is peruvian smoke, you know, Yo, army This comes from that side of the mountain, and Mm -hmm. it was made in the right This is pharmaceutical. This is the highest grade. You'd be going, oh, oh. oh." (laughs) That's what it was. It wasn't, oh, crack and all that shit. It was elegant. It was sophisticated. First time I went to New York, I met a photographer, a wonderful woman. She was seven-eighths blind, but she was a photographer. And on, on her coffee table, she just opened, you know, in the, old, in the movies, they'd open a, a box, they would be all cigarettes in there, big cigarette, gold case, you know. She had like that, but it was full of pre-rolled joints, you know, right. because again, uh, if you threw a face at something like that, people would look at you like, there's something wrong with you. You don't appreciate the fine things in life, you know.
0: One final question. I know we've got to wrap it up. Uh, what did the members of the Eagles and Irving Azoff say about your book? Because you know they read
2: it. I've heard nothing so far. I've heard absolutely nothing, and I'd quite like to keep it that way.
0: That means you. That means you did a great job with the book. So well, I, can't
2: imagine, I can't imagine getting an email going. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for that book. Thank you. But like I say, I didn't write it for Irving or the Eagles. I wrote it for the reader. You've got to be honest and true to the reader. And if I do that, it's mission accomplished. The rest is where the cookie crumbles. You know, I don't care if they love me or ever talk to me again. I don't care. <laughs> I just want the reader to know the book. I love that. It stops. Stops. That's I love that you don't care. Uh, I really do really-
1: <laughs> Hey, when the Elton book comes out, you have to come back and talk with uh, with us about that. I w- if you
2: would like really to have you back. I'm sure there will be an American edition. It's all being figured out right now, but yeah. I would come back and talk to you two guys anytime you like me. Excellent. Thanks, well, man. then
0: count on it because we're definitely going to be reaching out to you again this was a lot of fun and thank you for the great information thank you for writing such a fun book i'm not a huge eagles fan but reading this book was a lot of fun especially the whole peripheral story that had to happen to make the eagles happen amazing
2: well thank you that that means everything to me because that was the whole purpose of the book to make it like that so the fact that you enjoyed it in that way to me is the ultimate compliment so thank you thank you guys Bye, Bye
0: Wow, Ray, we could have spoken with Mick all
1: day long. This, in a pub with pints uh, and onto his other books and other stuff. So we could just stay there. And the guy is a virtually endless source of stories and fun.
0: And he's so meticulous in his research and his details and the way he was able to. Share those details in story form made it even more fun to read and can't wait to read more books from Mick Wall.
1: Thanks to Mick for coming on to the podcast. If you've got any comments about this week's episode, send them via email to imbalancehistory at gmail.com. Well, that's going to do it this round, buddy. Another great interview with an amazing author. And in this case, a guy who's part of, you know, my whole hashtag born in 58 thing. So, kind of cool that he's also done a book about Prince who was also born in 58. More about these and other crazy topics the next time we get together on the Imbalanced History
0: of Rock and Roll.
3: It's NFL Draft Season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.